You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm Allison Jones and I'll be your host for today's show. Today we'll be talking about clinical challenges due to COVID and I will be joined by two of our physicians here, Stuart Cohen and Dr. Turner Overton. Dr. Cohen, could you introduce yourself please? Sure. Uh, Good morning. It's great to be here today. Uh, My name is Stuart Cohen. I'm uh, the chief of UAB Prime Care, uh, practicing internist at UAB. I've been seeing patients at Kirkland and now Whitaker Clinic for a little over 20 years. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Overton. Yeah, hi. I'm Turner Overton from the uh, Division of Infectious Diseases. I'm the um, clinic director of the UAB 1917 HIV clinic. And uh, with the advent of the COVID pandemic here at UAB, I've been one of the uh, lead clinicians uh, helping take care of patients with acute COVID in the outpatient setting. Well, it's wonderful to have you both with us. Uh, I want to talk just initially about what changes you saw immediately when COVID first set in. We're, you know, 18 months into this pandemic now. And Dr. Cohen, I wonder if you could get us started. What did you see immediately when COVID first hit? Sure. Well, I think the the immediate challenge with COVID was, right, this was a a new infectious disease that we knew very Mm -hmm. little about. We knew respiratory virus and transmitted uh, through droplets. So where typically, right, we would bring patients into the clinic to evaluate them and to, to see how they were doing, we immediately had to flip that on its head. And, uh, and really try to keep patients out of the clinic, if you will, in large part for the protection of staff, but also protection of patients who may be in room. So we really turned on telehealth overnight. Now at UAB, some of the infrastructure for telehealth uh, was already in place, although telehealth was not uh, a technology that was utilized much at all. It was used in just a few limited areas. Um, but we were literally turned it on overnight. I, I would say within within a week of, of COVID hitting, we took uh, our typical schedule where we might see 20 patients in a day and we were seeing you know 18 to 20 patients uh, via telehealth. So that's probably the largest change we had to. Uh, we also set up um, uh, testing sites uh, to test for COVID uh, as well as shortly thereafter, we then, Uh, set up what's known as a respiratory clinic, and Dr. Overton uh, really took a lead role in that. And that was a clinic where patients could be seen, evaluated by uh, uh, physicians, obtain basic blood work, have uh, x-rays performed, uh, but in a controlled setting, one where there was proper PPE, proper ventilation, uh, and again, trying to keep those patients out of the the general uh, ambulatory clinic population. Sure. Dr. Overton, your background is in infectious disease, but what challenges were unique to COVID specifically? Well, one thing that's happening behind the scenes at all uh, medical centers is pandemic preparedness. So we're very fortunate that our leadership, Sarah Nafziger and um, Rachel Lee, um, had the institution well prepared. Nevertheless, we had to make some rapid changes to um, kind of institutional policies um, first and foremost was keeping our uh, workforce healthy. Um, so we had to change how we did um, 
you know, uh, allowing visitors in the facility, how we started wearing masks, hand hygiene. As Dr. Cohen mentioned, while, you know, this is a respiratory virus and we recognize that now, you know, there was concerns about how it was transmitted. Um, we were having um, 30 to 50 employees daily uh, coming down with COVID-like symptoms. So we had to develop a strategy for testing and an algorithm how to keep them safe. And so we developed those, those strategies rapidly and saw our numbers decline in terms of employees. Um, the other thing we recognized is initially in the, the pandemic, you know, testing was a real limitation. And so working with our institution to divert resources to testing so we could identify people early um, and then also developing strategies um, to address isolation and prevent onward transmission. These were some big initiatives that, that we, we started early on and that were highly effective, um, both for our, our workforce as well as our, our patients. Um, there's lots of anxiety about this virus because so little was known, both for the providers as well as for patients. So I think a lot of providers were spending time uh, counseling their patients how to, to deal with that anxiety as well. And are there any changes that you've developed in as a result of these challenges that you think are going to stay in your clinical practice? Um, I think probably the biggest, yeah, the biggest change is, is first of all, telehealth is likely not going away. So telehealth is a, a part of our practice now. Uh, during the height of the pandemic or, or maybe going back Christmas time when we had maybe 80-90% of patients that we saw via telehealth, that number has decreased, but it's still an available option. But I think one thing that we've learned is the importance of masking, um, not just for the prevention of COVID, but, but for the prevention of other respiratory viruses such as influenza and even you know the common cold. So I, I think masking is something which is likely here to stay and, uh, and, and will become part and parcel of routine practice. And Dr. Upperton, anything on your end? One of the things that we do in most of our medical uh, facilities now is have some form of screening at the entryways, both for patients and visitors. Um, and I think those are very important, um, both to raise awareness about potential COVID symptoms, but also to keep our staff and employees um, safe. So I think we can uh, we can expect to continue to have some form of of screening for these types of symptoms moving forward as as well. Yeah, I think that that would be a logical progression. Um, you mentioned that patients are a little more anxious about this disease than other diseases, and I wonder, do you think that that has impacted their willingness to seek care or their hesitancy with seeking care? Dr. Overton? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I, you know, as I mentioned, I'm the medical director of our HIV clinic where we follow about 3,700 people living with HIV. In our clinic, we've seen a, a notable uh, increase in uh, mental health concerns among our patients, um, as well as increased um, uh, substance use that can negatively impact their health care. Um, and then on top of that, we have uh, patients who are um, sometimes unwilling to, to come to their visits because of their fear. We, we've seen a marked increase in the use of our psychology and counseling services through our, our um, social work staff here. So I, I think that's sort of a hidden burden 
of this pandemic is the effect on people's mental health and wellness. Yeah, I would make a comment about about testing. You know, we are now, you know, 18 months, two years into the pandemic. And there's a certain fatigue that takes place, right, that everyone sort of wants us to be over. But unfortunately, it's not over. Um, So when it comes to testing and how COVID presents, right, it presents as an upper respiratory tract infection. Uh, That can be as mild as people just having a runny nose, a little nasal congestion, a little headache, uh, which for oftentimes people think they just have a little sinus infection or or allergies. Um, And we know now, um, even those who have been vaccinated, that that can be sort of mild COVID symptoms. So we're, we're really doing our best to recommend that all patients who have these symptoms get tested. And, and there certainly has been more of a, of a reluctance today to get tested than maybe uh, early on when I think the fear was so great um, uh, or the fear was greater and, and what we, we, we understood the disease less. So, so I think it's important just as a, as a word of caution that, that these symptoms, um, although they may simply be allergies or, 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 or a sinus type infection, um, it's COVID is a possibility. And if we're going to get control of not only early treatment, but also preventing uh, further uh, progression and transmission, uh, testing is just so important. Absolutely. And, you know, the other key part of that is um, vaccines. And I'm curious to know, Dr. Turner, um, I'm sorry, Dr. Overton, in your practice, how are you addressing concerns on the part of patients who may be hesitant to get the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. So um, in our clinical practice, um, I think our patients are, are highly likely to take vaccinations um, because they recognize that's that's key for prevention. But we still have a, a percentage of our of our our patients here at uh, the HIV clinic who are reluctant to get vaccinated or hesitant to get vaccinated. And so really try to develop a dialogue and, and try to find out why uh, they don't want to get vaccinated and what their concerns are, and then try to address those um, those concerns. Um, I think there there is misinformation out there, and so trying to understand um, you know what people have heard and and address those. So there there are many different types of, of vaccine hesitancy. So some of which is really people are willing to get vaccinated but just haven't. Um, uh, because a maybe they don't perceive uh, themselves to be at risk, and they think it's it's already gone through our community, and so raising that awareness. Some people are anxious about the consequences of vaccine. Is it going impl- to Im- impact their ability to work, or are they going to have time off? And then there are people that are are less likely to truly get vaccinated. They're distrustful of the healthcare system, and they don't feel like it's been equitable for them. And then finally, there's a group of people who are very skeptical. And while they may be very hard to, to reach, it's still important to develop a dialogue with them. Um, just about everybody in the state of Alabama has been affected by COVID. We all know someone who has gotten sick. And so really talking to, to them about their, their personal experience and then talk about the uh, vaccine as a true prevention measure um, can offset some of those concerns and encourage people to get um, vaccinated. It's not a, a, a time to 
make someone fearful or, or shameful or afraid. Rather, it's a time to uh, raise awareness and try to understand their concerns. So that's really what I try to do in my experience with patients. And Dr. Cohen, in, um, in your clinic, how are you handling the hesitancy? I would echo actually everything that Turner just said. I think he is spot on. Um, you know, it, in my practice, it's a little more of an older population, and we've seen a much greater uptake of vaccines in general uh, for those over 65. Uh, where we are seeing more hesitancy is really more the younger population. I think many uh, feel that they are uh, otherwise healthy and just are, are less concerned that if they were to get COVID, uh, that they're going to get uh, very ill. And although that's a true statement, it doesn't mean that they can't. So again, I think you 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 listen and try to understand their concerns, uh, what their uh, fears may be or or what their rationale may be. i don't I don't engage necessarily in a in a long debate about why they're not getting it. I really try to focus on my understanding and the medical um, you know, medicine's understanding of the effectiveness of vaccines, the fact that they are safe, um, and really, really highlight that, and 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 don't, and and sort of at the end of the day, understand that it, that patients make their own decisions, and I have been optimistic that many patients that that I have seen now on on follow up over the last several months since vaccines have been available, there have been many who were quite reluctant initially, who over time have really uh, changed their thinking. Um, and I think part of it is is just an acceptance and understanding that that it is safe. Uh, more people are getting vaccinated. Uh, they're not having uh, really bad side effects at all from the vaccine. So for many, it's a matter of time. And I'm just optimistic that that many more people I'm seeing coming over to realizing the benefits of vaccine. Well, I certainly hope that continues. Um, you know, part of our role as a care provider is to interact with not just the patient, but the family member as well. So how has COVID changed your practice and your interaction with your patients in terms of limiting visitors? Um, Dr. Overton. Well, it's been really bad for us, I'll tell you. In our clinic, per se, many times our patients will have a family member or significant other uh, come to their visit, and we have not allowed those visitors unless someone is cognitively or physically impaired and requires uh, assistance. So that has been challenging and a frustration for patients. Often um, they have people who are engaged in their health and, and help them you know, with medication adherence or, or other aspects of care, or they you know, also help them deal with the anxiety or stress they have related to a medical visit. So I think it's really been a frustration um, for us, but at the same time, you know, these are policies that we needed to enact. I think what what is more concerning is for those patients who are hospitalized because um, there not only are visitors not allowed to come, they have less interactions with the medical staff. And so they can become really isolated and have negative uh, consequences um, uh, we see a lot of uh, hospital-related delirium in patients who are isolated in our COVID ward. So that is a big challenge, and, and trying to overcome that is, is hard. We, we are a social being, and, and we benefit from, from social interactions. Yeah, I agree. And Dr. Cohen, you, you mentioned the influence of telehealth 
and how much that has picked up. How have you integrated telehealth with the caregivers? Well, one nice thing about when you're on a telehealth call is oftentimes it's a family affair um, that, you know, you are the, the patient on the on the other side is there with family members, oftentimes with a uh, with sort of younger, younger uh Children, you know, adult children who are helping them uh, sort of manage the technology. So, so the telehealth visits are, are are actually better as far as interacting with other family members, and 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 as well as you get the added benefit of actually eyes in the home, which can really be quite uh, quite um, uh, nice to see and and can shed light on someone's you know home situation. So, I think telehealth has been helpful in that sense for sure. Um, Dr. Overton, I wonder if you could talk to us about testing and what are the differences between the various types of COVID tests? Yeah, sure. I mean, the best tests are still uh, what people will refer to as the brain biopsy, uh, a deep NP swab. Uh, the, the virus replicates in, in the, the uh, upper airways and the, uh, the distal uh, pharynx there, uh, nasal pharynx. So those, that's still the best swab, and to use a, a PCR-based test, which, which actually detects the RNA of, of the virus. There are other tests that are available that people may be familiar with. These are antigen tests, and, and these are available, and they're a more rapid tests because you can do an antigen test uh, within 15 minutes. And these tests are good, particularly for symptomatic people, but if you're very early in the course of your illness or you're asymptomatic, these tests may give a false negative, and it's actually not a false negative. It's just that there's not enough of the antigen being produced yet uh, to be measurable by these assays. In addition, there are some home tests that are antigen-based. Um, these tests are good tests, but they um, may not have the same uh, sensitivity as the PCR. The PCR-based test, um, it remains the, the best test that we have uh, for COVID uh, currently. Um, if a person has an exposure to COVID, you're much better served to wait at least three to five days to get tested if you're asymptomatic, so there's enough time to, to identify whether that virus has been transmitted, and it's preferential to use the PCR-based test. If you're symptomatic, um, the antigen tests start to approach the PCR in terms of their sensitivity. And for those people who are symptomatic and are waiting for their test results, we're assuming that they are approaching this as a positive case, correct? That's right. So that's absolutely correct. If a person has symptoms, they should remain in isolation until they know the results of the test. Too often I hear that people go about their business until they get their test result, and that's the wrong approach. You should assume that you have the disease until proven otherwise. And particularly uh, this fall, as we move into another flu season, that's, that's very important. Um, last year, we had a very mild flu season. We really don't know what will happen this year, but you need to make the assumption that you have uh, have COVID unless otherwise, uh, until you know for sure uh, that you don't. So, uh, you know, we tell people that we test who are symptomatic to remain in isolation until they get the results of that test. Um, and something that we are encountering now that we are months into this is the, the effect of long COVID or prolonged symptoms. And Dr. Cohen, I wonder if you could just talk briefly about what you're seeing in patients um, after that initial infection. 
Sure. So you're referring to sort of what we call post-COVID syndrome, other terms that have been used is long COVID, long haulers. Um, and this is really an evolving area. Um, it's felt that you know, the acute symptoms of COVID uh, typically last four to up to six weeks. Uh, and then there's a period between four to 12 weeks where we have ongoing symptomatic COVID. And then post-COVID, uh, at least in some of the, the initial studies, was defined as ongoing COVID symptoms beyond 12 weeks after the start of the illness. Um, important to say that, that one has ongoing symptoms not explained by some other diagnosis. Uh, some of the newer diagnoses for post-COVID is actually limiting that, maybe more to patients are having symptoms beyond uh, six weeks. Um, but nonetheless, I think that the, the notion is the same, which is that there are many patients that have ongoing symptoms that they relate to COVID after the acute infectious period is over. Um, we, we don't know exactly the number of patients who develop long COVID. Um, when you look at the literature, there's a huge sort of variability as to you know, how many people who have COVID develop post-COVID symptoms. I, I think most would agree that the number is somewhere in the range of 15 to 30 percent, so maybe a quarter of individuals uh, can expect to have ongoing uh, COVID symptoms. And, and, and they can be a little different from the, the typical acute symptoms, uh, where the acute symptoms are, are frequently primarily uh, upper respiratory tract, fever, cough, sort of flu-like illness with, with maybe some muscle aches, um, also with the loss of sense and smell. Some of the post-COVID symptoms, uh, what, what I'm seeing in my clinic that's most troubling to folks oftentimes is the ongoing persistent fatigue. Um, oftentimes, you know, breathing issues, cough, shortness of breath can be present. Um, but the psychological or cognitive symptoms are really are, are, are real. Um, they, are, they are very um, distressful uh, for folks, right? So issues with ongoing anxiety, potentially depression, uh, what we sort of call sort of a post-COVID fog, difficulty concentrating. I think these are, these are, are symptoms that, are, that I'm seeing a lot of um, and, and are just really difficult for, for folks. And I think it's, it's important just as, as the medical community, right, that we recognize this as a real syndrome uh, and, 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 you know, do our best to, to you know, do an appropriate workup when, when needed, um, but also being there to, to help, you know, be there for patients under, you know, let patients know that this is a real uh, issue and then work with them to, to try to educate them on the fact that most post-COVID symptoms do improve with time. Um, and I think that that's a very positive, um, a positive message. It can be difficult for patients as they're going through it um, because there is no single test we can do to say that this is a post-COVID. Uh, there's no single treatment that we have uh, that's going to eradicate the symptoms. A lot of it is, is really watchful waiting, um, managing what, whatever the symptoms that the patients have uh, the best we can, um, but understanding that that most will improve with time. And to that point, um, UAB has developed a post-COVID clinic. Is that correct, Dr. Overton? Yes, ma'am. That's you tell right, us Allison. About we have. So we started this uh, ambulatory clinic uh, to see people safely with COVID, like Dr. Cohen mentioned. 
Um, what we started seeing were people four, six weeks and beyond out who were having persistent symptoms, just like uh, Stuart outlined, and they no longer had COVID. They were considered COVID convalesced. They're no longer infectious, um, but they were having ongoing symptoms. I think what is most concerning about these, I mean, I will go back and say, first, the good news is for most of these uh, patients, the symptoms do improve with time. And so that is that is really good. But there is a, a still a, a not insignificant number. There are 800,000 people in Alabama who have been diagnosed with COVID. Um, if even only 10% of them have persistent symptoms or long COVID, that's still 80,000 Alabamians. That's a lot of people uh, with these symptoms. And what, I think what's most disturbing is that some of the symptoms are actually made worse uh, with physical or mental exertion. Um, and so that can just be extremely challenging in terms of how to address them. Um, so we did develop a, a program uh, where we can refer people to subspecialists when indicated. And as, as Stuart mentioned, I think the first thing is to recognize that many of these can be handled by the primary care physician. But when people are having persistent respiratory issues or chest pain, then perhaps a referral to pulmonary. If they're having conditions that may be related to uh, uh, palpitations or feelings of lightheadedness, dizziness, it may be time to get an evaluation by cardiology. People with persistent headaches or brain fog may need neurology or, or neuropsychiatric testing. Um, and so we've set up a, um, a way to, to refer patients to these subspecialists when indicated. Uh, and while I would say those three, neurology, uh, pulmonary, and cardiology are the most common, we do see people with dermatologic changes that persist, that have ENT changes, not just the, the loss of sense of smell and taste, but some people have, have hearing loss uh, as well, or difficulty with phonation um, that may benefit from ENT evaluations. Uh, we have people with chronic GI symptoms, and so uh, being seen by GI or hepatology may help. Um, so, you know, I think for the right patients, we need to have the right pathway. There have been previous um, post-infectious disease entities, say post-Lyme disease or uh, maybe the biggest example um, or mononucleosis where people do have persistent symptoms and we haven't had a pathway to get these people uh, treated. So we're trying to develop strategies and though we don't have like Stuart said, one way to diagnose people or a single magic bullet to, to treat these, I think recognizing that these are true post-COVID related symptoms is the first step uh, to helping people get better. So in general, what would you say you have learned or what has been um, the most notable to you of your experience in serving as a clinician during this pandemic, Dr. Cohen? I, I think one is that, right, this is a, an evolving disease. We, we are learning day to day uh, what is effective in, in, in sort of treatment. Our, our, our vaccine um, development, uh, as fast as we were able um, to develop a vaccine, is, is remarkable. Um, so I, I think as well as what I'm seeing daily is just sort of how in the world of sort of post-COVID, just everyone's symptoms seem are, are so different. There, there is not a universal uh, approach to this. And I think one has to listen carefully to the patients and, and really sort of individualize the approach to each patient who is presenting 
uh, certainly with sort of post-COVID uh, symptoms. So um, kind of wild, to be honest with you, at just the, 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 how quickly we have learned to understand this disease, development of vaccines, and then, you know, our treatment options for COVID itself, although limited, are, are certainly evolving rapidly. Yeah, I share that sentiment. I've been very um, intrigued by all of this as well. Dr. Overton, anything that comes to mind for you? Uh, I mean, I think it, it just reinforces the issues. We need to lis listen to our patients. Um, early on in the pandemic, we talk about post-COVID. Um, many of the symptoms people were complaining about were dismissed by providers, and, and there were groups, networks on social media that started up and really recognizing they were having, you know, similar kind of manifestations. So I think it is important. It's just raised to me how important it is to take time to listen to your patient and hear what she or he has to say about his ongoing symptoms and not just dismiss them. So, you know, I know that's been my experience with my doctor is that he takes time and sits down and listens to me in my visit. I certainly hope that my patients have the same experience when they come to see me. And we've talked about the treatment program at UAB. Any other resources that you'd want to share with our audience if they're wanting to learn more about either post-COVID or some clinical challenges? Well, we did do a uh, series of, of lectures this summer that were uh, geared lunch and learns for patients about post-COVID, and those are available. We can give you the link um, just really from, so all of our subspecialists who are seeing patients kind of gave a patient-centered uh, talk about that. I would really encourage people to take a listen to those if they're interested in learning more about post-COVID. Um, and, you know, then there are many resources on on uh, the internet that you can use, some of which are better than others. And I think you've put together a nice list that you can share with people at the end. Stuart? Yeah, I would just say I still find the uh, the CDC. The CDC website is a wonderful website, and there are many um, uh, aspects of that website that are that are focused uh, towards uh, patients themselves that can be really helpful. Um, there are several um, support groups, some of which I, I think you're going to be um, putting up online and that are referenced to that can be wonderful resources uh, that uh, patients who uh, you know have uh, who are on, undergoing not only acute COVID, but post-COVID can go to and find uh, really, you know, really good information, but also a, a supportive group of, of individuals who are going through uh, and experiencing similar issues. Um, another website that I found helpful comes out, out of England. It's the National Institute for Health Research, uh, and they just, it's part of their national health system, and there are some really, really um, just well-done uh, pages in which they discuss uh, post-COVID or long COVID uh, in a way that I think is very uh, relatable to patients and can be quite helpful. And I think that that uh, resource is also listed. All great suggestions. Thank you. And we are coming to the end of our time. I wonder if you can each leave us with one of your big takeaways. Dr. Carlin, we can start with you. Sure. I, I think that, you know, we are we are fast um, approaching a new phase with COVID. I think early on there was 
maybe the hope that we could eradicate COVID and it would go away. I think that's not going to be the case. So where COVID will likely end up being uh, an endemic infection such as uh, such as influenza. Um, so I think it's not a matter of, of sort of, you know, when you are exposed to COVID, I think at some point everyone will be exposed to COVID. So I can't uh, preach enough the importance of vaccination. I think if you're exposed to COVID and you're vaccinated, the likelihood of one getting significantly ill is uh, is very low. Um, so uh, I would leave everyone just with uh, the the notion that that we need to get vaccinated. Uh, I think we are still uh, in a situation where masking and basic social distancing uh, are just tried and true public health measures that we need to continue with. Um, despite uh, the, the fatigue and uh, the fact that most of us would love to move on, I, I just think we need to bear down now and, and keep doing the things that are effective in preventing the transmission. Agreed. And Dr. Overton, your takeaway. Well, I would just, you know, my encouragement to everyone is to go out there and get vaccinated. That's our best way to get back to normal. And you know, we will need to have strategies in place, mitigation when we have, you know, surges in the future or during uh, if there becomes a COVID season um, and we'll address those. Um, but, you know, we need to recognize there are ways that we eliminated smallpox and polio from this country um, uh, through vaccination. We should take the same approach uh, uh, to try to eliminate COVID. Well, I once again want to thank you both for your time today and sharing your expertise and your experience with us. And thank you to our audience for joining us on Clinical Pearls, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.